Chapter Three of Elsie Venner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Elsie Venner by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Chapter Three. Mr. Bernard tries his hand. Whether the student advertised for a school or whether he fell in with the advertisement of a school committee is not certain. At any rate, it was not long before he found himself the head of a large district, or, as it was called by the inhabitants, district school, in the flourishing inland village of Pequocket, or, as it is commonly spelt, Pequocket Center. The natives of this place would be surprised if they should hear that any of the readers of a work published in Boston were unacquainted with so remarkable a locality, as, however, some copies of it may be read at a distance from this distinguished metropolis, it may be well to give a few particulars respecting the place taken from the universal gazetteer. Pigwacket, sometimes spelled Pequacket, a post-village and township in blank county state of blank situated in a fine agricultural region two thriving villages pigwacket center and smithville three churches several schoolhouses and many handsome private residences mink river runs through the town navigable for small boats after heavy rains muddy pond at northeast section well stocked with horn pouts eels and shiners products beef pork butter cheese manufactures shoe pegs clothespins and tinware population one thousand three hundred seventy three the reader may think there is nothing very remarkable implied in this description if however he had read the town history by the rev jabez grubb he would have learned that like the celebrated little pedlington it was distinguished by many very remarkable advantages. Thus, the situation of Pigwacket is eminently beautiful, looking down the lovely valley of Mink River, a tributary of the Musquash. The air is salubrious, and many of the inhabitants have attained great age, several having passed the allotted period of threescore years and ten before succumbing to any of the various ills that flesh is heir to. Widow Comfort Levens died in 1836, of age 87 years. Venus, an African, died in 1841, supposed to be 100 years old. The people are distinguished for intelligence, as has been frequently remarked by eminent lyceum lecturers, who have invariably spoken in the highest terms of a pigwacket audience. There is a public library, containing nearly a hundred volumes, free to all subscribers. The preached word is well attended, there is a flourishing temperance society, and the schools are excellent. It is a residence admirably adapted to refined families who relish the beauties of nature and the charms of society. The Honorable John Smith, formerly a member of the State Senate, was a native of this town. That is the way they all talk. After all, it is probably pretty much like other inland New England towns in point of salubrity. 
that is, gives people their choice of dysentery or fever every autumn, with a season ticket for consumption, good all the year round. And so of the other pretenses, pigwacket audience, forsooth, was there ever an audience anywhere, though there wasn't a pair of eyes in it brighter than pickled oysters, that didn't think it was distinguished for intelligence? The preached word! That means the Reverend Jabez Grubb's sermons, temperance society, excellent schools. Ah, that is just what we were talking about. The truth was that District Number 1, Pigwacket Center, had had a good deal of trouble of late with its schoolmasters. The committee had done their best, but there were a number of well-grown and pretty rough young fellows who had got the upper hand of the masters and meant to keep it. Two dynasties had fallen before the uprising of this fierce democracy. This was a thing that used to be not very uncommon, but in so intelligent a community as that of Pigwacket Center, in an era of public libraries and lyceum lectures, it was portentous and alarming. The rebellion began under the fair rule of Master Weeks, a slender youth from a country college, underfed, thin-blooded, sloping-shouldered, knock-kneed, straight-haired, weak-bearded, pale-eyed, wide-pupiled, half-colored, a common type enough in indoor races, not rich enough to pick and choose in their alliances. Nature kills off a good many of this sort in the first teething time, a few in later childhood, a good many again in early adolescence, but every now and then one runs the gauntlet of her various diseases, or rather forms of one disease, and grows up, as Master Weeks had done. It was a very foolish thing for him to try to inflict personal punishment on such a lusty young fellow as Abner Briggs, Jr., one of the hardest customers in the way of a rough-and-tumble fight that there were anywhere round. No doubt he had been insolent, but it would have been better to overlook it. It pains me to report the events which took place when the master made his rash attempt to maintain his authority. Abner Briggs, Jr., was a great hulking fellow who had been bred to butchering, but urged by his parents to attend school in order to learn the elegant accomplishments of reading and writing in which he was sadly deficient. He was in the habit of talking and laughing pretty loud in school hours, of throwing wads of paper reduced to a pulp by a natural and easy process, of occasional insolence and general negligence. One of the soft but unpleasant missiles, just alluded to, flew by the master's head one morning and flattened itself against the wall, where it adhered in the form of a convex mass in alto relievo. The master looked round and saw the young butcher's arm in an attitude which pointed to it unequivocally as the source from which the projectile had taken its flight. Master Weeks turned pale. He must lick Abner Briggs, Jr., or abdicate. So he determined to lick Abner Briggs, Jr. "'Come here, sir,' he said. "'You have insulted me and outraged the decency of the schoolroom often enough.' hold out your hand. The young fellow grinned and held it out. The master struck at it with his black ruler, with a will in the blow and a snapping of the eyes, 
as much as to say that he meant to make him smart this time. The young fellow pulled his hand back as the ruler came down, and the master hit himself a vicious blow with it on the right knee. There are things no man can stand. The master caught the refractory youth by the collar and began shaking him, or rather shaking himself against him. "'Let go of that ear coat now,' said the fellow, "'or I'll make ye. It'll take two on yet handle me, I tell ye, and then ye can't do it.' And the young pupil returned the master's attention by catching hold of his collar. When it comes to that, the best man, not exactly in the moral sense, but rather in the material, and more especially the muscular point of view, is very apt to have the best of it, irrespectively of the merits of the case. So it happened now. The unfortunate schoolmaster found himself taking the measure of the sanded floor amidst the general uproar of the school. From that moment his ferule was broken, and the school committee very soon had a vacancy to fill. Master Pigeon, the successor of Master Weeks, was of better stature, but loosely put together and slender-limbed. A dreadfully nervous kind of man he was, walking on tiptoe, started at sudden noises, was distressed when he heard a whisper, had a quick, suspicious look, and was always saying, Hush! and putting his hands to his ears. The boys were not long in finding out about this nervous weakness, of course. In less than a week, a regular system of torments was inaugurated, full of the most diabolical malice and ingenuity. The exercises of the conspirators varied from day to day, but consisted mainly of foot-scraping, solos on the slate-pencil, making it screech on the slate, falling of heavy books, attacks of coughing, banging of desk-lids, boot-creaking, with sounds as of drawing a cork from time to time, followed by suppressed chuckles. Master Pigeon grew worse and worse under these afflictions. The rascally boys always had an excuse for any one trick they were caught at. "'Couldn't help coughing, sir.' "'Slipped out of my hand, sir.' "'Didn't go to, sir.' didn't do it a purpose, sir, and so on, always the best of reasons for the most outrageous of behavior. The master weighed himself at the grocer's on a platform balance some ten days after he began keeping the school. At the end of a week he weighed himself again. He had lost two pounds. At the end of another week he had lost five. He made a little calculation based on these data from which he learned that in a certain number of months, going on at this rate, he should come to weigh precisely nothing at all. And as this was a sum in subtraction he did not care to work out in practice, Master Pigeon took to himself wings and left the school committee in possession of a letter of resignation and a vacant place to fill once more. This was the school to which Mr. Bernard Langdon found himself appointed as master, he accepted the place conditionally, with the understanding that he should leave it at the end of a month, if he were tired of it. The advent of Master Langdon to Pigwacket Centre created a much more lively sensation than had attended that of either of his predecessors. Looks go a good way all the world over, and though there were several good-looking people in the place, and Major Bush was what the natives of the town called a handsome man, that is, big, fat, and red, 
yet the sight of a really elegant young fellow with the natural air which grows up with carefully bred young persons was a novelty the brahmin blood which came from his grandfather as well as from his mother a direct descendant of the old flint family well known by the famous tutor henry flint c cat harve anno sixteen ninety three had been enlivened and enriched by that of the wentworths which had had a good deal of ripe old madeira and other generous elements mingled with it so that it ran to gout sometimes in the old folks and to high spirit warm complexion and curly hair in some of the younger ones the soft curling hair mr bernard had inherited something perhaps of the high spirit but that we shall have a chance of finding out by and by but the long sermons and the frugal board of his brahmin ancestry with his own habits of study had told upon his color which was subdued to something more of delicacy than one would care to see in a young fellow with rough work before him this however made him look more interesting or as the young ladies at major bush's said interestin when mr bernard showed himself at meeting on the first sunday after his arrival it may be supposed that a good many eyes were turned upon the young schoolmaster there was something heroic in his coming forward so readily to take a place which called for a strong hand and a prompt steady will to guide it in fact his position was that of a military chieftain on the eve of a battle everybody knew everything in pigwacket centre and it was an understood thing that the young rebels meant to put down the new master if they could it was natural that the two prettiest girls in the village called in the local dialect as nearly as our limited alphabet will represent it almany cutter and arvely brown should feel and express an interest in the good-looking stranger and that when their flattering comments were repeated in the hearing of their indigenous admirers among whom were some of the older boys of the school it should not add to the amiable dispositions of the turbulent youth monday came and the new schoolmaster was in his chair at the upper end of the schoolhouse on the raised platform the rustics looked at his handsome face thoughtful peaceful pleasant cheerful but sharply cut round the lips and proudly lighted about the eyes the ringleader of the mischief-makers the young butcher who has before figured in this narrative looked at him stealthily whenever he got a chance to study him unobserved for the truth was he felt uncomfortable whenever he found the large dark eyes fixed on his own little sharp deep-set grey ones but he managed to study him pretty well first his face then his neck and shoulders the set of his arms the narrowing at the loins the make of his legs and the way he moved in short he examined him as he would have examined a steer to see what he could do and how he would cut it up if he could only have gone to him and felt of his muscles he would have been entirely satisfied he was not a very wise youth but he did know well enough that though big arms and legs are very good things there is something besides size that goes to make a man and he had heard stories of a fighting man called the spider from his attenuated proportions who was yet a terrible hitter in the ring and had whipped many a big-limbed fellow 
in and out of the roped arena. Nothing could be smoother than the way in which everything went on for the first day or two. The new master was so kind and courteous, he seemed to take everything in such a natural, easy way, that there was no chance to pick a quarrel with him. He, in the meantime, thought it best to watch the boys and young men for a day or two with as little show of authority as possible. It was easy enough to see that he would have occasion for it before long. The schoolhouse was a grim, old, red, one-story building perched on a bare rock at the top of a hill, partly because this was a conspicuous site for the Temple of Learning, and partly because land is cheap, where there is no chance even for rye or buckwheat, and the very sheep find nothing to nibble. About the little porch were carved initials and dates at various heights, from the stature of nine to that of eighteen. Inside were old unpainted desks, unpainted but browned with the umber of human contact, and hacked by innumerable jackknives. It was long since the walls had been whitewashed, as might be conjectured, by the various traces left upon them, whenever idle hands or sleepy heads could reach them. A curious appearance was noticeable on various higher parts of the wall, namely a wart-like eruption, as one would be tempted to call it, being in reality a crop of the soft missiles before mentioned, which, adhering in considerable numbers and hardening after the usual fashion of papier-mâché, formed at last permanent ornaments of the edifice. The young master's quick eye soon noticed that a particular part of the wall was most favored with these ornamental appendages. Their position pointed sufficiently clearly to the part of the room they came from. In fact, there was a nest of young mutineers just there, which must be broken up by a coup d'etat. This was easily effected by redistributing the seats and arranging the scholars according to classes, so that a mischievous fellow, charged full of the rebellious imponderable, should find himself between two non-conductors, in the shape of small boys of studious habits. It was managed quietly enough, in such a plausible sort of way, that its motive was not thought of, but its effects were soon felt and then began a system of correspondence by signs, and the throwing of little scrawls done up in pellets, and announced by preliminary aham, to call the attention of the distant youth addressed. Some of these were incendiary documents, devoting the schoolmaster to the lower divinities as a stuck-up dandy, as a purse-proud aristocrat, as a sight too big for his, etc., and holding him up in a variety of equally forcible phrases to the indignation of the youthful community of School District No. 1, Pigwacket Center. Presently, the draftsman of the school set a caricature in circulation, labeled, to prevent mistakes, with the schoolmaster's name, an immense bell-crowned hat, and a long, pointed, swallow-tailed coat showed that the artist had in his mind the conventional dandy, as shown in prints of thirty or forty years ago, rather than any actual human aspect of the time. But it was passed round among the boys and made its laugh, helping, of course, to undermine the master's authority, as Punch, or the Sharavari, takes the dignity out of an obnoxious minister. One morning, on going to the schoolroom, 
master langdon found an enlarged copy of this sketch with its label pinned on the door he took it down smiled a little put it into his pocket and entered the schoolroom an insidious silence prevailed which looked as if some plot were brewing the boys were ripe for mischief but afraid they had really no fault to find with the master except that he was dressed like a gentleman which a certain class of fellows always consider a personal insult to themselves but the older ones were evidently plotting and more than once the warning ahem was heard and a dirty little scrap of paper rolled into a wad shot from one seat to another one of these happened to strike the stove funnel and lodged on the master's desk he was cool enough not to seem to notice it he secured it however and found an opportunity to look at it without being observed by the boys it required no immediate notice he who should have enjoyed the privilege of looking upon mr bernard langdon the next morning when his toilet was about half finished would have had a very pleasant gratuitous exhibition first he buckled the strap of his trousers pretty tightly then he took up a pair of heavy dumbbells and swung them for a few minutes then two great indian clubs with which he enacted all sorts of impossible-looking feats his limbs were not very large nor his shoulders remarkably broad but if you knew as much of the muscles as all persons who look at statues and pictures with a critical eye ought to have learned if you knew the trapezius lying diamond-shaped over the back and shoulders like a monk's cowl or the deltoid which caps the shoulder like an epaulette or the triceps which furnishes the calf of the upper arm or the hard-knotted biceps any of the great sculptural landmarks in fact you would have said that there was a pretty show of them beneath the white satiny skin of mr bernard langdon and if you had seen him when he had laid down the indian clubs catch hold of a leather strap that hung from the beam of the old-fashioned ceiling and lift and lower himself over and over again by his left hand alone you might have thought it a very simple and easy thing to do until you tried to do it yourself mr bernard looked at himself with the eye of an expert pretty well he said not so much fallen off as i expected then he set up his bolster in a very knowing sort of way and delivered two or three blows straight as rulers and swift as winks that will do he said then as if determined to make a certainty of his condition he took a dynamometer from one of the drawers in his old veneered bureau first he squeezed it with his two hands then he placed it on the floor and lifted steadily strongly the springs creaked and cracked the index swept with a great stride far up into the high figures of the scale it was a good lift he was satisfied he sat down on the edge of his bed and looked at his cleanly shaped arms if i strike one of those boobies i am afraid i shall spoil him he said yet this young man when weighed with his class at the college could barely turn one hundred and forty-two pounds in the scale not a heavy weight surely but some of the middleweights as the present english champion for instance seem to be of a far finer quality of muscle than the bulkier fellows the master took his breakfast with a good appetite that morning but was perhaps rather more quiet than usual 
After breakfast he went upstairs and put on a light, loose frock instead of that which he commonly wore, which was a close-fitting and rather stylish one. On his way to school he met Almany Cutter, who happened to be walking in the other direction. "'Good morning, Miss Cutter,' he said, for she and another young lady had been introduced to him on a former occasion, in the usual phrase of polite society, in presenting ladies to gentlemen. "'Mr. Langdon, let me make ye acquainted with Miss Cutter.' let me make ye acquainted with miss brown so he said good morning to which she replied good morning mr langdon how's your health the answer to this question ought naturally to have been the end of the talk but almany cutter lingered and looked as if she had something more on her mind a young fellow does not require a great experience to read a simple country girl's face as if it were a signboard Almany was a good soul, with red cheeks and bright eyes, kind-hearted as she could be, and it was out of the question for her to hide her thoughts or feelings like a fine lady. Her bright eyes were moist and her red cheeks paler than their wont, as she said, with her lips quivering, "'Oh, Mr. Langdon, them boys'll be the death of ye if ye don't take care.' "'Why, what's the matter, my dear?' said Mr. Bernard." don't think there was anything very odd in that my dear at the second interview with a village belle. Some of these woman-tamers call a girl my dear after five minutes' acquaintance, and it sounds all right as they say it, but you had better not try it at a venture. It sounded all right to Almany, as Mr. Bernard said it. "'I'll tell you what's the matter,' she said, in a frightened voice. "'Abner's going to car his dog.' and he'll set him on ye sure as you're alive tis the same creature that hath ed up eben squire's little joe a year come next fast day now this last statement was undoubtedly overcolored as little joe squire's was running about the village with an ugly scar on his arm it is true where the beast had caught him with his teeth on the occasion of the child's taking liberties with him, as he had been accustomed to do with a good-tempered Newfoundland dog, who seemed to like being pulled and hauled round by children. After this the creature was commonly muzzled, and, as he was fed on raw meat chiefly, was always ready for a fight, which he was occasionally indulged in, when anything stout enough to match him could be found in any of the neighboring villages." tiger or more briefly tig the property of abner briggs jr belonged to a species not distinctly named in scientific books but well known to our country folks under the name yalla dog they do not use this expression as they would say black dog or white dog but with almost as definite a meaning as when they speak of a terrier or a spaniel a yalla dog is a large canine brute of a dingy old flannel color of no particular breed except his own who hangs round a tavern or a butcher's shop or trots alongside of a team looking as if he were disgusted with the world and the world with him our inland population while they tolerate him speak of him with contempt old blank of meredith bridge used to twit the sun for not shining on cloudy days swearing that if he hung up his yalla dog, he would make a better show of daylight. 
a country fellow abusing a horse of his neighbors vowed that if he had such a hoss he'd swap him for a yellow dog and then shoot the dog tige was an ill-conditioned brute by nature and art had not improved him by cropping his ears and tail and investing him with a spiked collar he bore on his person also various not ornamental scars marks of old battles for tige had fight in him as was said before and as might be guessed by a certain bluntness about the muzzle with a projection of the lower jaw which looked as if there might be a bulldog stripe among the numerous bar sinisters of his lineage it was hardly fair however to leave almany cutter waiting while this piece of natural history was telling as she spoke of little joe who had been half eat up by tige she could not contain her sympathies and began to cry why my little dear soul said mr bernard what are you worried about i used to play with a bear when i was a boy and the bear used to hug me and i used to kiss him so it was too bad of mr bernard only the second time he had seen almany but her kind feelings had touched him and that seemed the most natural way of expressing his gratitude almany looked round to see if anybody was near she saw nobody so of course it would do no good to holler she saw nobody but a stout young fellow leading a yellow dog muzzled saw her through a crack in a picket fence not a great way off the road many a year he had been hangin round almany and never did he see any encouraging look or hear any behave now or come now ain't ye shamed or other forbidding phrase of acquiescence such as village bells understand as well as ever did the nymph who fled to the willows in the eclogue we all remember no wonder he was furious when he saw the schoolmaster who had never seen the girl until within a week touching with his lips those rosy cheeks which he had never dared to approach but that was all it was a sudden impulse and the master turned away from the young girl laughing and telling her not to fret herself about him he could take care of himself so master langdon walked on towards his schoolhouse not displeased perhaps with his little adventure nor immensely elated by it for he was one of the natural class of the sex subduers and had had many a smile without asking which had been denied to the feeble youth who tried to win favor by pleading their passion in rhyme and even to the more formidable approaches of young officers in volunteer companies considered by many to be quite irresistible to the fair who have once beheld them from their windows in the epaulettes and plumes and sashes of the pigwacket invincibles or the hackmatack rangers master langdon took his seat and began the exercises of his school the smaller boys recited their lessons well enough but some of the larger ones were negligent and surly he noticed one or two of them looking toward the door as if expecting somebody or something in that direction at half-past nine o'clock abner briggs jr who had not yet shown himself made his appearance he was followed by his yalla dog without his muzzle who squatted down very grimly near the door and gave a wolfish look round the room as if he were considering 
which was the plumpest boy to begin with. The young butcher, meanwhile, went to his seat, looking somewhat flushed, except round the lips, which were hardly as red as common, and set pretty sharply. "'Put out that dog, Abner Briggs,' the master spoke, as the captain speaks to the helmsman, when there are rocks foaming at the lips, right under his lee. Abner Briggs answered as the helmsman answers, when he knows he has a mutinous crew round him that mean to run the ship on the reef, and is one of the mutineers himself. "'Put him out yourself, if you ain't afeard on him.' The master stepped into the aisle, the great cur showed his teeth, and the devilish instincts of his old wolf ancestry looked out of his eyes, and flashed from his sharp tusks, and yawned in his wide mouth and deep red gullet. The movements of animals are so much quicker than those of human beings commonly are, that they avoid blows as easily as one of us steps out of the way of an ox-cart. It must be a very stupid dog that lets himself be run over by a fast driver in his gig. He can jump out of the wheel's way after the tire has already touched him. So while one is lifting a stick to strike or drawing back his foot to kick, the beast makes his spring, and the blow or the kick comes too late. It was not so this time. The master was a fencer and something of a boxer. He had played at single stick and was used to watching an adversary's eye and coming down on him without any of those premonitory symptoms by which unpractised persons show long beforehand what mischief they meditate. "'Out with you,' he said fiercely, and explained what he meant by a sudden flash of his foot that clashed the yellow dog's white teeth together like the springing of a bear-trap. The cur knew he had found his master at the first word and glance, as low animals on four legs, or a smaller number, always do, and the blow took him so by surprise that it curled him up in an instant, and he went bundling out of the open schoolhouse door with a most pitiable yelp, and his stump of a tail, shut down as close as his owner ever shut the short, stubbed blade of his jackknife. It was time for the other cur to find who his master. "'Follow your dog, Abner Briggs,' said Master Langdon. The stout butcher youth looked round, but the rebels were all cowed and sat still. "'I'll go when I'm ready,' he said, "'and I guess I won't go afore I'm ready.' "'You're ready now,' said Master Langdon, turning up his cuffs, so that the little boys noticed the yellow gleam of a pair of gold sleeve-buttons, once worn by Colonel Percy Wentworth, famous in the old French war. Abner Briggs, Jr., did not apparently think he was ready, at any rate, for he rose up in his place and stood with clenched fists, defiant, as the master strode towards him. The master knew the fellow was really frightened, for all his looks, and that he must have no time to rally, so he caught him suddenly by the collar, and, with one great pull, had him out over his desk and on the open floor. He gave him a sharp fling backwards, and stood looking at him. The rough-and-tumble fighters all clinch, as everybody knows, and Abner Briggs, Jr., was one of that kind. He remembered how he had floored Master Weeks, and he had just spunk enough left in him to try to repeat his former successful experiment on the new master, 
he sprang at him open-handed to clutch him so the master had to strike once but very hard and just in the place to tell no doubt the authority that doth hedge a schoolmaster added to the effect of the blow but the blow was itself a neat one and did not require to be repeated now go home said the master and don't let me see you or your dog here again and he turned his cuffs down over the gold sleeve buttons this finished the great pigwacket center school rebellion what could be done with a master who was so pleasant as long as the boys behaved decently and such a terrible fellow when he got riled as they called it in a week's time everything was reduced to order and the school committee were delighted the master however had received a proposition so much more agreeable and advantageous that he informed the committee he should leave at the end of his month having in his eye a sensible and energetic young college graduate who would be willing and fully competent to take his place so at the expiration of the appointed time bernard langdon late master of the school district number one pigwacket centre took his departure from that place for another locality whither we shall follow him carrying with him the regrets of the committee of most of the scholars and of several young ladies also two locks of hair sent unbeknown to pay rents one dark and one warmish auburn inscribed with the respective initials of almany cutter and arvilly brown End of chapter 3